The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. It is time for Streetwise with former chief of the New York City Sheriff's Department, former chief of the Seagate Police Department, retired New York City detective, Time Warner Public Access Media Award, Joe Franklin Super Excellence in Broadcasting Memory Lane Award, New York Veteran Police Association Streetwise Productions, host of Streetwise, Mr. Lou Tarano. Uh, good evening and welcome back to Streetwise. This is Lou Tarano, of course, and i got to tell you this, my guest who's sitting in front of me, uh, it's a rarity because I've interviewed him several times in the last several years. And his timing for what we need now is a lot of his, let me put it this way, his forensic science. Uh, wait, 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 let me tell you, let me just get right to him. He said you probably heard of him before because he's been there several times before. But from Austin, Texas, all the way sitting here in uh, Nassau County and Merrick uh, Avenue, uh, he had, him and his wife talked about several things. Let's go to New York, and I think we'll visit uh, uh, Lou Tolano, and then maybe the Statue of Liberty, and then maybe the Empire State Building, and maybe the, the ferry and Rockefeller Center. But anyway, I uh, took advantage, and I thank him for doing his city tour and coming to Streetwise. I want to, my pleasure to uh, introduce, uh, he's the clinical forensic forensic psychologist and by the way he might be doing a syndicated show I think he is it's going to be mainstream mental health radio but we'll talk about that again Professor Dr. John Yuba welcome to Streetwise well thank you for having me here Lou I appreciate the opportunity and I wouldn't have missed this for anything well I'm, I'm glad you're able to jump on plus the uh, first time on the Long Island Ra- Railroad I understand well for, for my wife, for I, wife I had friends out in Port Washington mm. back in the day and, and we would ride in and out all the time and you know it, it was it, it's still amazing today right. it was a little different back then graffiti on the trains and stuff like that It's it's been a while but uh, I'm, I'm impressed with how much cleaner everything is. It's still okay. very efficient. Glad uh, to hear that. And it, it, it's, it's, it's very enjoyable for my wife and myself to be able right. to do that. So I'm going to say thank you because I'm part of New York. At least I think I am. But, you know, we, there's so many things to talk about. That, that we, we just talked about it before in the green room. Uh, uh, you know, I didn't realize that uh, homicides, I'm, I'm sorry, suicides, uh, Dr. Huber, occurring all over the place. And when I say all over the place, Two recent high-profile suicides occurred. Anthony Bodine, he's the national, pretty much known sheriff, and Kate Spade, tremendous, well-known fashion designer. But that's not unusual. But what's unusual is that uh, 123 people commit suicide daily in this country. So I, I think what's about these two high-profile people that commit suicide uh, Anthony Bodine and Katie Spade. I, I think it draws attention to it, and we have to focus on it. But I just have to just give a little plug out there, and uh, it's sort of a, a, a service message. If you're thinking, and I have to say this, contemplating or having your mind suicide. Now I, I'm serious, and, and the doctor here will explain. And you know, what, I think many of us at one time, I believe, had had the thought of suicide, and that's my belief, that all of us at one time in our life we thought of it, whether we were going to do it or not, but it crossed our, our mind. There's a hotline number, 
Wait, that's my phone number. Is it? I'm giving. Well, it, well you know something? Let it's them call you. It's 800. 273. 273-TALK. Uh, T-A-L-K, which is? 8255. 8255-TALK. So that would be 1-800. You know something? They should call you, by the way. But we'll, we'll give that number out later. You know? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you'll give a reason why they to hang in there. Right, and we'll talk about why should people hang in there longer than they think. I, I also they like I mean, that that's a national number. It's great, it's, right? But I also, if you're really, Go ahead. you're on that ledge and you just can't, don't mm. be afraid to call nine one one. Our our police today, Correct. they the 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 switchboard people are trained. They know how to get you the help you need and to take care of you. So nine one one. You don't have to remember the whole thing. You that's don't have right. to remember that eight hundred number. Um, you know, or if you're walking down the street, walk into an emergency room at any hospital, and Great. they will take care. Of, make sure you're safe. Or church, at, or, or, or church. Yeah. Um, you know, or knock on a window of a police car. I right. mean, I mean, we want you to be safe. You know, the, the thought is, oh, there's always tomorrow, unless you end it. And uh, it, no matter how bad it is, it feels like it's the end right then. The fact is that there is tomorrow, and mm. uh, with a little bit of help, you can make it through and realize that it, it, it doesn't have to stop right there. In fact, there's an interesting study. They looked at survivors of people who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge mm. in San Francisco, and 100% of them, the minute that survived, the minute they jumped off, they're going, what am I doing? Correct. Why am I doing this? And they survive. Those are the survivors, you know. Yes. Um, and even with the nets and stuff they put over, people are still going past the nets, and it, it's pretty crazy. But a hundred percent of the survivors have documented that the minute they jumped, they realized that whatever their problems were, they really weren't that bad. They it's could have figured late. out a way through it. It was too late. But it was too late. too late. But they lived. I, you know, I had a, a young jumper. Well, that's the expression. Yes. Uh, you know, in the police terminology, you have a jumper, Brooklyn Bridge or a high-rise building. You know. Uh, 19-year-old female jumped off of a high-rise in uh, East New York, Brooklyn, and we responded. And the first thing she said, am I alive? Am I alive? Am I alive? Exactly, Dr. Yuba. She was too late, but she survived. Yes. You know, she survived. So that told us she didn't want to really do it. You know? Well, she thought she did at that moment, she, or she wouldn't moment. have done it. She wouldn't have taken that step. Yeah. You but, know, but, again, it's hard. Like you said, you know, there is a tomorrow. But for, for someone who's emotionally distraught, uh, Dr. Yuba, they don't. They, they think tomorrow. I think today. They think today is over with. Is yes. that correct? You think it's yes. gone? Now, do you think sort of like there are copycat? There are copy copycat. So many different types of right. issues. There, there, that's that's the fear with suicide. Yes. Because in the eighties, we didn't really know how to take care of the the suicide situation. So. Uh, say a high school student would commit suicide, mm. and the schools would have a gathering. They pull in everybody from the whole school into their gymnasium and kind of honor this person. And if you're one of these people who think that life is horrible, and you finally got somebody who's paying attention to you, uh, or, or you want somebody to pay attention and know who you are, that's the perfect way for you to do that. So what happened is they would have these celebrations for this person who died, and all of a sudden they started having a rash of suicides. Mm. So we found out, okay, quit celebrating it. You know, it's like this person passed. You know, if you need to talk to the counselor, they're available for you. Let's go on with, with school. And it kind of subsequently suppressed a lot of those reactionary yeah. suicides. 
So that's one of the fears of celebrating yes. or, or of discussing what this. What are we doing now talking about two? Exactly. Like, yeah. And you mentioned you know, over 120 people a day, 22 veterans a day commit yes. suicide. Mm. And, you know, we we try not to push that too much because we don't want people to think that it's a viable answer, that suicide is a viable way to solve your problems. So we we want to discuss it we want to have an open discourse with it but we don't want to celebrate it if that makes sense right and we want people to know that there is help that no matter how bad it is you know if we can get you through the next minute and then the minute after that and the minute after that and you start to breathe that tomorrow it's not going to be quite as bad mm-hmm. and it may just be a fraction less but you're going to wake up one day, and it's got—it's not going to be that bad anymore. Well, that's why I, you know, usually there's a, there's almost a copycat and you know, and serial killers yes. even things yes. like that, the mass shooters, or you know, and I'm concerned about we're giving this, like you said, we're sort of giving it a celebration, you know, and people could think that's okay. A lot of the young people, you know, they think they have all kinds of issues, and the young young people will commit suicide together. Uh, to hold hands, jump off a bridge, or jump into the, or even the, you know. Anyway, so uh, aside from uh, the uh, mental health part of it, uh, Doctor Huber, and, and aside from dialing nine one one or one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five, what can parents or someone that can make an observation or, or can see that? Because I had a conversation with a retired police officer, and I talked, and I have to say this, I talked him out of committing suicide. Right. And if he didn't have a conversation with me, I would think he would have done it. So can, can we just, I just happened to only because that, my that, That's one I, of the important things, right. is spending time with that individual firsthand. Yes. What, mm. what we're seeing today, especially you, since, since 1999 to 2014, which is the, the most data we have, the most accurate data we right. have right now, we've had a 25% increase in suicides. Mm. Okay. The millennial generation has the highest suicide attempt rate of any previous. The highest? Generation. The highest attempt rate. One in five, 20% attempt at mm. some point, primarily between teenage through young adulthood. Um, and it's a serious thing, and we're trying to figure out what's going on. So we've done a lot of stuff, and things have changed. You know, we have now social media. We have sm- right. smartphones, which mm. are 11 years old. So most millennials don't remember a world without that and, the, you know, that coiled cord on your kitchen phone that if you wanted privacy, you had to hide in the pantry with the cord stretched right. out, you know. <laughs> and uh, and the phone rang and everybody runs. Is it for me? Is it for me? Well, that's a different world. It's gone forever. My kids, for example, do not know a world without smartphones. Right. And what we found out so far is that, there is evidence that social media apps are actually causal for depression. Right. Not not correlation, but causation. And if we look at the neurochemistry behind that, when you meet somebody and you see them down the hall, they smile at you, you mm. feel good, you get a dopamine burst, you shake their hand, you get all these wonderful chemical responses in your body that help help your body feel good and heal and nurture itself. When you see a friend on a social media app, for example, Instagram, and they like that Instagram picture that you put up or that phrase you put up there, you get a little bit of a dopamine burst. But all the other neurochemical processes that happen when you meet that person in real life don't happen at all. So what happens is it's much like drinking a diet soda. 
It, it kind of fills your stomach up. It tastes sweet. You feel satisfied for the moment. For the moment. But mm. you're not getting any nutrition. And if you drink enough of that diet soda, it's going to be really bad for you. You know, we had young people to commit suicide. Exactly what we're talking about. As a result, I, social media, they're, they're, they're bullied on social media. Right. Right, and then they, and that's uh, the end of the world as far as they're concerned. Exactly. Right? And and I do believe within millenniums, the new people they just can't handle any. It seems like they can't handle any kind of pressure, what they could consider pressure, Doctor Yuba. Why the heck is that? Well, again, if we do pressure in a text, you don't know right. if somebody's sarcastic or if they're really angry. Right. When you're face to face, you learn that. You learn that smile, that twist yeah, of the shoulder, mm. and you know, hey, that person is joking with me, and you, they're not, you know. And again, that camaraderie, that connection, that human elements there. You lose that with that cell phone, that smartphone, the tablet, and these apps. And what we're seeing is right now an increase, actually young, the highest rate of increase of suicide are young girls between 10 and 14. And that's social media. I, my world isn't perfect like hers. Right. Well, everybody on social media can make their world look amazing even though it's horrible. Right. So they get to filter everything. And, you know, we, we think of somebody like Anthony Bourdain who right. apparently had the world on his sleeve. I mean, mm. he had everything you could want. He, you know, he went from a struggling chef to world-renowned, traveling, has an audience everywhere he goes, had an amazing daughter, I understand, 12 yes. years old. Mm. And his world's perfect, right? Well, no, that's the picture you see because he, he's selling a character, he's selling entertainment, and we don't necessarily get to see what's underlying all of that under entertainment. Mm. Uh, we can go back and think of Robin Williams, right? You know, and it's funny because there, there's I, I loved the the Good Morning Vietnam, and I started watching a lot more of his shows, and I started having a problem with him as a psychologist. Right. I'm like, there's something yes. something boiling up inside yeah. of him, and my family loved his movies, so I, I tended to just kind of let them go. But, but you know, he, he's such a great comedian. Boiling up, uh, I mean, you could misdiagnose that. Oh, easily, easily, easily. Yeah, so you, you wouldn't see it, not even you as a forensic right. psychologist, because of his, what he does. Right, right? exactly. People say, yeah, that guy's going to run anyway. That guy's mm -hmm. off the wall anyway. The guy's crazy. So you can't detect that. And it's a, exactly. a good point, so, Doctor. It's, it's surprising. This yeah. So you ask, what, what can hmm. parents look for? Well, one right. of the things is uh, you have to be active in what your kids are doing on social media, mm. okay? And their kids are going to complain about it, but there are several apps out there. Some of them are like a dollar a month. I mean, $12, $13 a year is enough. Mm. It, my kids work that, okay? And what it does, it gives you action, actually all the communications on social media on your phone. So you see exactly what their friends are posting right. and what they're saying and everything else. And now don't don't do it clandestine. Tell your kids, be honest with them because you love them and care about them. And it's funny, some of the best ones, if you go on the app store, have the worst ratings because all the kids are going on saying it's the worst thing ever. Don't ever buy this. It's you know horrible, you know. And it's because the kids, the parents are able to watch what's going on. Pay attention to your kids. Make your kids work for their screen time. And what I mean by that is make them be involved in things that require both their hands to do. Mm. 
Um, we talked before the show. We know You know my family's big into martial arts. Well, one right. of the things my kids give me in exchange for access to their cell phone is martial arts time, is music time. They play piano yes, and great. guitar and sing, great. and they do activities that preclude them and keep them from being on their mm. phone. We know that if they have seven or more apps, statistically, they're three times more likely than the average person to be clinically depressed. Not just wow. suffering from depression, but actually be clinically depressed. Mm. Um, there's several hundred social media apps out there. And there's some good things coming out of this. We're having less unwed pregnancies because the kids aren't connecting with each other physically. They're doing it on, you know, we're having less... Sexually transmitted right, infections right, right, right. until, guess what? They move out of the house. Right. And then they go to the social media things like like uh, Tinder and Grinder and like that. And then they're doing these hookups and bam. And there's, you know, they think that there's no practice run. You know, when you date Correct. somebody, you're practicing how to hold a committed relationship. Right. You know, and, and that's a, that's a scary thing. We like that. There's no, yeah, there's no interaction with young, especially young people. Today. Exactly. And some schools uh, are saying now we don't want you to have best friends, so you can't sit by the people you know at lunch and know. things like that. Where, where else are we going to learn to to share information intimately and what secrets are okay to tell to other people and what aren't? And you know, everyone always had a best friend. Correct? Exactly. And that's what you learn and how you learn to have a best friend in your spouse. Right. And if you if you don't get to practice that. I, we're already cutting them short with social media, right. and now we're going to say, oh, in school, because we want you to be diversified and have lots of friends, mm. we don't want you to have a BFF, a best friend forever, whatever. We, you know, you mentioned your wife and your dad and your mom in, in general. Uh, you need, always need someone to confide in, I think, you know, yes. as growing up. There's always that best friend. I don't want to be repetitious. That you can. There's psychologists to. for that. You can do that. That's right. Today, that's exactly right. And so, how can they reach you? I know you're going to. You're going to. You know. Uh, you know if you guys want to want to reach us, you can follow us at mainstreammentalhealth.org. We're a good starting point for research. Right. If somebody goes, oh, I think something's going on with my cousin, my brother, yeah, or hey, my uncle just got diagnosed with bipolar disorder, mm. we're a good place to start your research. You know, go there, and, um, you know, we have several places there. Of course, we're a nonprofit, so everything we do is funded right. by donations. And um, it's there's some, some donation sites you can do there. You can go on if you use Amazon. There's a link to our Amazon Smile, and anything you buy, uh, Amazon will give a half a percent of whatever you buy and give it to us as a uh, donation. Now, let's talk about you personally, John Huber, you personally. Now, uh, I've interviewed many psychologists, psychiatrists throughout the years, uh, you are a clinical forensic, okay? That's for our audience. Well, I did get a couple of questions on that. What is <laughs> a clinical forensic okay. psychologist? Th there are several different types of psychologists, right. and most states recognize clinical counseling and school psychologists mm -hmm. as being able to deliver therapeutic services. Right. Some states also include industrial organizational, like through EAP programs, employee assistance programs, mm. and things like that. Um, but in general, you either have to have one of those types of degrees, a doctorate level, or you have to have the equivalent training. Say you're really interested in research, you can become an experimental psychologist. 
you can't go and do practice and and pay get reimbursed with insurance and do therapy mm. at, like that. Now you can be an experimental psychologist and then supplement, get additional classes to meet the same requirements mm. that your state has as a counseling or clinical or school psychologist. Now, just like the name says, school psychology, you're trained to do essentially, you know, the the clinical psychology, a psychological assessment, interventions, therapy in a school setting, basing your work off of state and federal educational right. laws, okay, which is slightly different, but it is, uh, you know, diagnosis-wise, it's very similar to a regular, but there are a few nuances. Uh, for example, you're not, as far as the school district's concerned, if you have, say, depression and you're still making straight A's, you do not qualify for mm. psychological services through your school system, Okay. Because the federal law says you have to be essentially failing a class before you qualify for those services. Mm. So that's important for parents to know because if you have a depressed kid and you ask the school to evaluate them, they evaluate them and said, well, yes, your child is depressed, but they don't meet qualifications the for services. It doesn't mean your child doesn't need them. Right. It means that they can't get them through the regular process in the school system. So is that where you come in? Well, that's what, that, that was actually my first job as a school psychologist. Uh-huh, but I mean, as far as now, forensic. Because to me, forensic means a different thing, being law enforcement. Right, and, and forensic actually means pertaining to the law, if you yes. go to the root word. And there's a lot of different things you can do. Uh, my basic training that I got during my clinical training mm-hmm. was kind of a standard baseline for most forensic psychologists. It teaches you how to do, for example, competency to stand trial. Mm-hmm. Okay. So somebody comes in, they're having a hard time with their attorney. The attorney goes to the judge, hey, you know, something's up with this guy. I'm not, I'm not able to, to prepare my case for him. He's, he's, mm. he's getting in the way, and I can't really tell you why. Well, the judge can ask for a forensic evaluation to see if he's competent to stand trial. But that would not interrupt her. That's Most times will come in and say someone's thinking about the sanity plea. Mm, well, the, that, that's very complicated. I'm still, I'm, we're, we're still, still on thing because right. you have to be deemed competent, competent. to stand trial before you, before you can you even be uh, before shown. you can say, hey. So you make the determination if he's competent to stand trial. Right. So okay. I, I do the assessment and right. I give the judge, Correct. and it's one of the things. Most things in court, the the psychologist is somebody who's helping the judge gather information. Right. Okay. For example, the insanity plea. I could get all my information together, but the judge makes the, the final determination correct. or the jury. But based, the on, trier of fact. based on what you present, pretty right. much. Yeah. Right, but I don't make the determination. Correct. But in competency, I do make a statement. You do. This person is competent or mm. is not competent, and here's the reason why. Okay? If you're going to plead the insanity plea, you have to be competent before you can plead insanity. Mm. So... That's important because what we're talking about here is competency is at the time of the trial itself. Mm. So right now we're in front of the judge. You're competent. Insanity is mm-hmm. at the time of the crime. The yeah. So the crime could have been three mm-hmm. weeks ago or three years ago. Now, that becomes difficult to go back in time and prove a state of mind, a state of fitness, so to speak. So typically, it's a very poor defense, even though it makes great movies, great storylines. There's evidence that that you know anywhere from one to twenty-five thousand to one to sixty thousand cases that consider 
insanity as a defense, only one of them Correct. is successful out sure. of that number. Sure. So it's a poor defense, and it's a positive defense. In other words, you're saying, yes, I did it, but. Right. So now you get a judge who's getting mad at you because you're you're taking you know this medical problem or psychological problem mm-hmm. over here, and there's thousands of people with that problem who none of them go and st- stab somebody Correct. or kill somebody, and you're trying to say because you know that's an excuse for you, and then we're finding you not insane. Mm. So now they tend to throw the book at you, whereas before they might have you know negotiated a lesser time or sentence if you'd have just pleaded guilty. Now they're saying you're not only basically slapping the court in the face saying I'm smarter than you, but you're offending all these people that have a real right. mental health. Now, issue. who would reach out for you in the court system? Would it be the defense? Different states have different different requirements. Or in even some, a judge, maybe. Right. In some states, the only person who can bring it up is the, is the defense. Right. In other states, it's anybody. The judge, mm. even the bailiff can say, Your Honor, I think there's something okay. up in yeah. some states. Okay, right. The mm. prosecuting attorneys can can bring it up. Right. Um, so it's important that you, you consult with, with a, a forensic psychologist through your attorney. And I say through your attorney for a Correct. couple of reasons. Because with attorneys, you have privilege. And you can say, well, yes, I did it, but this is what's going on. This is why I did it, and your attorney can then prepare your defense. If you come to me and say, this is stressing me out, I'm going to therapy, mm. I have what's called confidentiality, Correct. which is different than privilege. Mm. Confidentiality means the judge can say, here's a subpoena, tell me exactly what he said, and I have to unless I want to go to jail for you, which mm. my kids like to eat, so that means I need to be working. Right. So that's not going to happen. So whatever say. happens with mental health uh, confidentiality, I mean, you, that's the, if the judge gives you a subpoena, you have to fess up on what the, well, what you've uh, okay ninety uh, actually every time I've ever gotten one, right. knock on wood, so far right. to this day, right, I have replied with the judge saying, okay, Mister So and So or Susie Johnson, whatever, who I'm making these names up, mm. has been present mm. for seventeen sessions over the last X number of months. Uh, she has been compliant with my request. She is not late on any payments. Everything's paid for. And other than that, if you have a specific question, please address that specifically because right. I'm trying to pra- uh, protect my patient-client hmm. relationship. And I have not had a judge come back and say, no, you have to come up here and stand in court and testify to this fact. Hmm. Now, I've had clients come to me and say, okay, I'm working with my attorney, and my attorney would like you to come in and talk with me. And at that point, I am a witness of fact. I can only talk uh-huh. about what's gone on in my therapeutic thing. I, I can't be the typical forensic psychologist at that point. I can't evaluate them and say they're not competent because I have mm-hmm. a different relationship with that patient at that point. So usually when I get contacted, a patient will call, call me and say, hey, I you know, I, I'm going to court, and I have this, and I, and I need you to assess me. Sometimes they'll say, my attorney says for me to call you. My first response to them is, please have your attorney call mm. me first. Mm. Because that, that confidentiality versus privilege is different. Yeah. If I get hired by your attorney, I am a consultant for mm. your attorney, and he or she is my client, not you. Mm. So now... I have privilege because I'm protected by your attorney relationship. Wow. My, my guest is clinical forensic psychologist, Dr. John Yuba. If you want to call in, 516-623-1240. That's 
323-1240. A question for the famous clinical forensic psychologist who is going to be syndicated soon. And, uh, uh, and so, listen, not just streetwise here in uh, New York, uh, uh, Dr. John Yu, but do you think this, for an example, uh, it's amazing to me how a group of people, I want to get a little political if you don't mind, how a group of people can have a narrative, for an example, and which turns out to be sort of a, a hatred like I've never seen, and I hear this all the time. This last presidential race is like a psychosis for whatever, you know. It's, it's like a group of people all need your help. You know, it, in, in other words, there's such a hatred. I have to say this for Donald Trump that it's not just, oh, I don't like this president. I don't, but it's a hate where it gets so bad that some say, well, I, I like to see him get assassinated, or oh, I'd kill him myself, or I wish he would die. That's how. And these are people, average people, that you would think, right, are not off the wall. So what happens to an average person who gets so politically? Uh, I, I don't know. Is it? Insanity, temporary insanity, whatever. I, What's I, your thought on that? I think it's more like groupthink. Groupthink. You know, when you sit down and talk with a person, and you and that person are negotiating and trying to work something out, right? You know, you can come up with a solution. You get five or six people in there. Now you have a committee. You'll work for for weeks and not mm. get any response that's even halfway appropriate. Well, why is it such a? There's like a group hatred. Then seems like. You know, it, it goes off on tantrums, tantrums. tangents. And we start getting emotional, and when we get emotional, our brain does the fight-or-flight thing like our body does. And the blood flow goes from our frontal cortex, right. our new brain, in the front, and it goes into the, the limbic system where all our emotions are. And so it basically starves our logical centers in our brain. So we're not thinking clearly. So they're not thinking. But your emotions are running amok and they're Correct. getting juiced. And, okay, <laughs> so. that takes over pretty exactly. much. Your, your, yeah. i got uh, Johanna on the phone for Dr. John Hubert. Yes, Johanna. Hi, Dr. Hubert. Nice talking to you. Um, I don't remember who quoted this, but I think it's very appropriate about suicide. Uh, everyone you know is fighting a battle you know nothing about and be kind. Now, I wanted to ask you, do you have any long-term studies on the theories that you have of how you can prevent children uh, from becoming suicidal or adults? And uh, do you have any idea why people who are so successful, uh, wealthy, and they seem to have everything that you could want, why they take their own lives or a feeling of uh, no self-worth? Oh. Well, I, I have had the privilege of working with some some people who go nameless, but they're famous or wealthy at mm. uh, different levels. And one thing that I've learned is money's not good, it's not bad. It's a multiplier. Mm. If everything in your world is going perfect, money just makes it that much better. But if everything in the world that everybody else sees look perfect, but all those internal angst and those questions that you doubt yourself and, you know, you... you 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 know you don't feel like your family loves you or your significant others trying to you know have a divorce and all all these things it just multiplies those emotions mm -hmm. and, and and it becomes overwhelming and the rest of the world they don't see that they see the outside picture right they see 
Oh, they live in a big house, a mansion. They have maids. Mm-hmm. You know, they're on national television. They do all, you know, mm-hmm. and and they don't see the struggle inside. because the emotional struggle. Exactly. Because yeah. it's so much easier to hide it when you have that money. Yeah. But, yeah, but like Anthony Bourdain, he was in the middle of a new series. Yes. 11th and then he season. Touched his own life. Uh, 11th you know? Yeah, that's, see, that's something like Johan said. People, you see, they're making a plan. Yes. Right? Uh, looking forward to a, an event. He had an 11-year-old young lady, girl, that he was his daughter, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. these are the things that you would say, well, it's... Uh, he know? looked like he had everything. and he, he Yeah. You know, I'm, but, you know, I'm such a conspiracy. <laughs> I, I wonder, you know, you know, you know where I'm leading to. Just by, and by also, background. Doctor, do you feel that uh, opioids or any drugs have anything to do mm. with it, the, the changing of your thinking? And Well, they, they do change your thinking, and, and there, there's a lot of interesting discussion going on. You know, we, we talk about, and you've seen, you know, a lot of these conspiracy people saying, mm. oh, well, look at all the suicides because of the antidepressants or because of the mm. antipsychotics. And and it's interesting because professions in my field have known that the most dangerous for suicide situation we have is is the condition called bipolar, where you get depressed, but then you also get manic. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that's serious is usually, not always, but, but 90, 95% of the time, when you're really depressed, you don't have the energy or the motivation or the strength to actually end your life. Yeah. It's when that when you start feeling better... And you think to yourself, I never want to feel like I did yesterday morning ever again. Mm -hmm. And now you have some energy. So you give somebody an antidepressant, and they start feeling good, and everybody goes, wow, he's got great spirit. He's got that Mm. sparkle in his eyes and everything. And then you walk in, and you find that they've committed suicide. And it's like, oh, it's the drugs problem. No, it's it's the individual made the choice. The drugs made things happen a little faster than what they would have, so they couldn't kind of handle the success, if that makes sense. Um, And and it's overwhelming. It totally is. So we need to stay aware of our friends. I think that's one of the reasons for my nonprofit, Mainstream Mental Health, is we need to be able to talk about mental health issues without freaking out, without thinking this person is broken or somehow substandard. Because if if you're fully aware that your friends are going through these things and they start taking these antidepressants, you can be there to start looking for those signals. Like, hey, if something were to happen with me, you'd take my dog, right? Mm. You know, that's yeah. kind of a warning sign. Hey, wait a sure. minute. Let's talk about this. You know, mm. nothing's yeah. going to happen to you, right? You're going to call me first. You're going to call those are red flags. I would exactly. Think, yeah. uh, well, thank you so much for answering my questions. Thank you, and Joanna. Thank you for your mm. good work. Uh, Thank you. What's true, you know, it's, it's like people that uh, you would say, wow, they, they have everything, like you said, you know, they have everything that you would want in the world. But, uh, you, you know, someone asked me a question because they, I think they uh, they both uh, hung themselves, both both people that were talking about, you know, Anthony Bodine and Kate Spade, the fashion designer, and by a scarf, I think that's my career. Oh, by a scarf. But you know, what's, you know what strikes me is that uh, I... I, I had several cases where people died of strangulation by scarves, and I think two or three, but and each one was a homicide. Well, so, and, and that's interesting, and, and the strangulation is an interesting thing. I, I as a forensic inve- psychologist and, and, and studying right, crimes, right. I'm curious. Anthony Bourdain mm. hung himself with his bathrobe Beth, belt. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. So one of the things that I've looked at before in the past are situations that look like Suicide, but they tended un, there. There's um, 
kind of a, a pseudo deviant sex act called auto Correct. erotic asphyxiation. And mm. you know, I, I I want to know more about the Bourdain yeah, situation exactly. uh, in his bathroom. What was going on? Um, mm. I, okay. I but but could be sexual. It, it, it could be. But a, and a lot of people don't want to address that. Cross They're that. afraid of it. It's it's an extreme thing. But I Correct. think I think it can have a lot to do with. Um, Helping families process if they actually knew what was going on. Right. If that was the case, especially if they're highly religious and there's things Correct. against, Correct. you know, the difference between a, an accidental hanging Correct. and an actual suicide. I don't know enough about the situation, but whenever we start talking about hanging, that, that I, I just step uh, away. It might be a suicide, might not be. Correct. Let's just back off. Yeah, because I, I, again, I had something similar to a case that we're talking about. It was in the bathroom, and, and you know. And it had to do with committing a self-serving sexual act. Yes. And the person died of strangulation. People say, yeah, suicide. Anyway, that's uh, a, for someone to uh, whoever may want to think or talk about it. But I got Richie on the line for uh, Dr. John Huber. Richie, question or statement for Dr. John Huber? Uh, both, both. First, I have to tell you this is a fabulous public service that you both are doing. Uh, people don't realize everything that you're explaining, and I just think it's sensational. No one else is doing anything like it, mm. and it's definitely, definitely necessary, and I thank you for that. Plus, I want to ask Dr. Huber, um, how do you define uh, the um, your title? Because forensic psychology, how, how has that come about? What does it mean? Okay. I, I'm First and foremost, I'm clinically trained as a clinical psychologist. And my specialization, you know, some people specialize, for example, in child psychology. So mm -hmm. they're a, a, a clinical child or child clinical psychologist or a geriatric psychologist clinically trained. I am a clinical forensic psychologist. Now, every state has rules about how they can use those things. For example, in my state in Texas, to, to be a, a forensic psychologist, I have to have specific training in forensics then we have continuing education we have well, to do well explain what the forensics are oh, oh, well, I would, uh, yeah okay. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get there yeah. so so we have to have for the licensure to practice we have to have continuing education every year so many hours for me to maintain that forensic side i have to have additional hours specifically in forensics now the forensic side of it basically mm. means pertaining to the law now psychology is a helping thing where I walk in and I assume that when you walk into my office, you're telling me the truth. You are right. here, you're sad, you don't feel well, mm, this is yeah. what's going on, I feel violated, whatever. The forensic side of it, the legal side of it says, um, you're probably going to lie to me every chance you can to make yourself look mm. in the best possible light. So it's kind of a situation where I have to deal with two different dichotomous situations mm. for the same problem. Part of my job is to weed through and see how much of this is reality, how much of this is your perception, and how much of this is an outright you're lying. You're lying. Exactly. And I do that on different levels and in different situations. Sometimes I'm called by the court, and the court wants me to find out what's going on with this individual before they mm. decide on whether they're going to prosecute them or, or if they're going to order them to go get mental health treatment. Sometimes I get asked by the attorneys, and sometimes I get asked by the process itself. For example, mm. volatile child custody issues. Wow. Uh, that can be very problematic. 
uh, going in, and especially, again, that, that money multiplier thing I was yeah. just talking about, mm-hmm. it usually is not such a big deal if you're just an average middle-class citizen. Mm-hmm. But if there's a lot of money there and one spouse really hates the other one and they don't want the other spouse to have anything, they can use their kids as pawns. And that's what they usually wow. do, right? Uh, well, I'm not usually. Or, or bargaining I mean, or leverage. Yes. And so they, the judge asked me to come in. And I don't make a decision. What I do is I go do an evaluation. I do an evaluation on parenting styles. Then I turn around and I identify if there's any mental health issues, personality issues with the kids. And then I pull up and do research on parenting styles versus kids with those different issues and how they grow up and what the odds are. You know, six out of ten end up, you know, with severe depression if they have this type Mm. of parenting style, blah, 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 blah. And I give the judge that base rate data. And the judge then takes it and he makes a better decision. I don't make a decision who gets the kids. But the judge now is better informed. And it's expensive. It's time-consuming. One case can run me... A uh, hundred or more hours before wow. I end up in the courtroom, right. and and it's it's a legal expense. So your insurance isn't going to pay for it, right? And it also you've already got an attorney, so statistically, you are more likely to sue me if you don't like my right. my answer. So mm. it, it my liability goes up. So it is a very expensive thing. Uh, in in general, you know my fees run anywhere from eight thousand to almost $50,000 per case for that. Well, I was going to ask my next question. First of all, I understand exactly what you said. I was going to ask you why you went into this field. You know, there's a reason why, why people you... become cops or why you become a forensic psychologist. Why did Dr. Hubert chose you, forensic clinical? Well, actually, that's not. I actually, I actually turn a lot of those cases down because I like to sleep at night, and I, uh, I, I lay yeah. awake and worry about what what's happening with these right, people right and you know at the same time i do it because do i want somebody who's a hack and doesn't know what they're doing right. trying to do this and maybe making the situation worse wow. so well, mm. you do a great public service and i'm going to leave you with this you have a fabulous voice whenever you're ready you could have your own uh yes. rock and roll show you'd be a great ditch stocky or, or talk show host <laughs> fabulous voice. yes she is and, Yes, a great voice. And thank you, Richie. Thank you. Thank you. You're doing a great public service for both of you. Thank, thank, you. thank you, thank you, Richie. But awesome. you know, he, Richie, speaking of uh, talent, he's got the he's got two talented young children, and they're into music, and they uh, got a little taste of Billy Joel there from his son. You would think it was Billy Joel, and uh, they're uh, also what's great about uh, Dr. John Yuba, he's armed and dangerous, black belt, black gun. And then the family, the family also, and the, which is leading me into a big question with children and guns and Second Amendment and uh, I don't know these, these <laughs> young children and they did these walkouts in school. I had them here in the sh- in the show, and uh, y- you know this group. What we talked about, a group gets together like these young children. They thought by walking out, and they they still. Their slogan, the logo was never again. So they assumed they walk out and they thought they were going to make a point. And right after that, three weeks later, we had another school shooting. So 
Well, I, I, is there a, for these young kids who were brought up in this new millennium social media world that we're talking, talking about, and there's no communication yet, they're able to communicate to walk out of school and nobody should carry a firearm. What are your thoughts on that, if I'm asking the right yeah, yes. question? Yes, okay, so, so first of all, being a forensic psychologist, I have learned a long time ago that if I'm going to stand up in front of a judge and make a recommendation, I better have the research and the data behind me. Mm. And it doesn't necessarily matter what I personally feel. Yes. Okay. I have to go by the data because if I go by my feelings, I'm going to lose because mm. the other side's going to tear it up and or I'm probably going to make an irrational decision based off of emotion. Now, to preface everything we're getting ready to talk about right. with that Okay, I you know I may not necessarily personally feel a certain way, but I have to go by the data. I have to go if I want to try and protect somebody. I want to look at the data and make the best decision possible. And the first thing I'd like to say is I'm impressed with these kids' energy, their 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 drive to do this. I think it's amazing. You know, we haven't seen that from kids in a long time. Right. The the fear I have is they're the first generation that's actually rallied and protested to have their rights taken away. And their own and, rights taken and, away. And their own personal rights. Correct. And the problem with that is mm. maybe they're okay with the gun rights. And so they take away gun rights. Which one are they going to take away next that they Correct. won't be able to stop? Uh -huh. The real reason for the Second Amendment is to stand up to our government, period. I mean, uh, if you so go back to this is the first time in history that, that, that I'm aware that, of, that yes. We're both aware uh, of. I'm around yeah. a few hours longer than you. you know, <laughs> so, but uh, I never heard this. And, and that scares me. That, yeah. that scares me. And, and I love the energy. And I think what we should do is... Put that funnel, energy put into research. Have these kids look. Yes. Go in, research this. And what I know as a criminal researcher, right. that crime is opportunistic. Yes, a criminal does not want somebody to stand up to him and say, "Hey, stop," because they know you're going to retaliate. You're going to try and defend yourself. They want ease, convenience, and quickness. So, if we have a place that is easy target, in other words, nobody there can free defend free gun zones, for example. Exactly, you know, then that is a bullseye. Right. You know, and we, we think about it. Every president that I can recall has protected their family and children with guns. Right. If it's not a deterrent, why do the president's kids have those and mine can't? Why are they bodyguards? Why are they secret service? Why, why, why cannot my kids be protected too. by Correct. those same guns? Correct. And, and it creates... A soft zone, a target. Yes. Every mass shooting we've had has been in a soft, soft zone. Yeah. Uh, we have, I believe, 20 states that have no restrictions on handguns and rifles and shotguns. Mm. And my understanding is not one of them has had a mass school shooting. Right. Um, you know, the, I know there are researchers out there. I'm talking about a real mass shooting, not somebody mm -hmm. shooting a gun at a gun range and it ricochets and right. hits a window on a right. school and now it's a school shooting. Right. Uh, that I, I want, mm. you know, I mean... Four or more people, victims, right? You know, um, hmm. and and we haven't had one at a college like that. I, in fact, if we go back and look historically, and none of this is is you know happy things to talk about. I mean, it, it's it's not. I mean, it, this is a fearful thing. That's why we pay much attention to it. You know, it's it's on average less than three hundred of these deaths a year from the mass shootings, whether it's in a school or workplace violence, that type right. of stuff. But we have between 36 and 38,000 
homicides every year. By handguns. By, yes, by hand so we're talking it's one-tenth of one percent yeah. of all the homicides that are going on. But it, it makes up 99 percent or 98 percent of everything we talk about with homicides Correct. in the media. So we're driven to believe that this, you know, that every kid's going to die when they go to school tomorrow. Right. And that's not a reality. You're, you're more likely to actually be bitten by a shark than you are to right. die in a mass shooting. Right. So. <laughs> well, you, you know, it's, 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 I, I mentioned this before on the show is that uh, you mentioned the, uh, committing a crime by opportunity. Bank robbers, if there's two banks on a, a block and one has a bank guard and one doesn't, what bank are they most likely to knock off? Exactly. Exactly. It's, exactly. And again, it's a, I, I don't want kids dying. You know, I, right. I don't. I, and well, let me say this, uh, if, if I can. I don't want to put you in, in, in the spot, so to, so to speak, as you know. I mentioned several times, I believe uh, school faculty should uh, have firearms. I, I believe if, if I, they choose to. If, well, I, don't, I don't think oh, they should yeah, be forced course, to. guidelines. No, no, yes, if they choose yes. to. Uh, and if they course, do the training. Training uh, qualification. Yeah. yeah, of course. But uh, so uh, as opposed to so much opposition, well, teachers are there to educate, not to fire uh, a gun. But they also have a sworn oath. They're, they're also uh, mandated reporters. Yes, and, exactly. Right? And so they have just a like I am. Yeah, like exactly like you. I think mean, so. They uh, they have an obligation. So you have to look at that also. But yeah, they're, they're obligated to teach, obligated to protect their children. So, uh, all but, right, but again, so, if a teacher doesn't want a gun, I don't even want to carry a pocket knife. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I well, want them. I, I want their rights respected too. Right. Right. It has nothing to do with Second Amendment or any of these right. other things that they're talking about. But I believe it will. And I've said this. When I said it a week later, we had another school shooting. And, again, I'm sorry to say what's going to happen again. Uh, we have to, uh, my, not Dr. Uber saying this, I am. I believe we have to arm our school faculty, teachers, or, or staff, again, training, of course, and if they choose to themselves. I'm not going to force them to do that. Or, or take our veterans. I mean, they're, you know, they're retired, trained. Retired police officers, veterans. Exactly. Of course. Exactly. But, yeah. And they love kids. They love their families. That's Abs- why they went off yes. to fight yes. in wars. And, and they right. become police officers to protect us. Let them do it. Put them on campuses. Yeah. And, and, you know, the whole thing is opportunity for these individuals when they choose right. to do that. And if they choose to do something like that, they're going to look for a weak, soft target. Yep. And if they know that any one of the piece, person's adults on that campus could potentially defend themselves, they're going to be less mm. likely to do it. You know, Weight, weight Watchers, uh, I, I got a quote from, uh, they quoted me in the Weight Watchers magazine many years ago, something I said in the New York Times, and we're talking about people that are vulnerable and uh, who and people who commit crime by, crimes by opportunity. You just mentioned that. I mentioned senior citizens, of course. And then I said, obese people. I said, people that can't run and chase you, people like women that are 300 pounds, you know. So uh, what they did was they took, and they were saying, you know, uh, also being in shape can prevent muggers from stealing your pocketbook. You know, it was in the Weight Watchers magazine. They Mm -hmm. took it out of the New York Times when I was there. But uh, interesting, it it is, it's true, because uh, they're not going to grab or mug somebody that's in shape that may want to chase a person at you, you know, or uh, knock an old lady down. But it's uh, it's very true. And after you, even if these kids, and you would know, obviously, uh, if they are uh, have some sort of mental problem, do you think they were going to a school 
Doctor, you, if they feel some of the faculty may be armed with the, the state of mind, they're less likely to. Less do likely, that. I and, think and what so. You know, if if they're suffering and having emotional issues, typically you're statistically more likely to be a victim of violence than mm. a perpetrator. So right. just because somebody has it doesn't say, oh, oh they're definitely going to go out and hurt somebody. Right. What we see is there, there, there's there's basically one commonality with all the school shootings that we've seen mm. so far, and that is an absentee parental figure, primarily the father, mm. and a domineering other parental figure. Mm. And I'm going to sit there and tell you there's hundreds of thousands of kids out there who have that situation, who have a mental health issue, right. who don't do a violent act. So there mm. is something special out there about these individuals who do that. And, again, it goes back to being able to discuss mental health issues and the reason for mainstream mm. mental health. We need to know the history of these kids. We need to know because I, I talk to parents all the time and we diagnose, oh, your child, ha child has, you know, he sees things. Other people don't. And we diagnose them. They get a diagnostic uh, definition. So we present it then to a psychiatrist and we start getting interventions and treatments but then i go back and i say okay tell me about your child's childhood oh he was normal mm. you know because they don't want they, they they hide things oh he was a little eccentric this way and that well, way like any other kid exactly and and the problem with that is maybe maybe they really were yeah. but the problem with that is early intervention mm. okay if if we knew more about say 80 or 90 percent of all these people who get diagnosed with stuff regardless of whether they commit a violent act or not if we knew more about what their daily life was like and what eccentric behaviors they may have exhibited that somebody thought was cute and just kind of pushed it aside right. ignored it we may be able to help identify and prevent these mental health issues from becoming full-blown think about childhood cancer late mm -hmm. 70s early early 80s if you got childhood cancer, survival rate was 15 to 20 percent. Today, survival rate's around 85 percent. Why? Because mm. we studied what was going on with the children mm. before they actually had the cancer. So we found interventions and ways to prevent things from going to maturity. Mm. Because of mental health stigma, people afraid, ashamed, whatever's going on. There's lots of different, we could, we could have a three-hour show just on the stigma right. and what's causing it. And mm. The cultural differences, religion, I mean, on right. and on and on. Right. Re regardless of what those are, if we could just discuss more and get out in the open and actually have data now to start doing research, my belief is, and my hope, is that we will be able to start doing minor interventions with these people when they're so much younger before they have their full-blown psychosis or mental health problems and stop it before it ever gets there and they never have those problems but you know even though you're saying that those, these last several cases they, uh, these kids fell through the cracks they, 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 there were red flags all the, over the, the, place. The, the Florida for sure did. for sure Parkland okay. for sure and, and Par Parkland was definitely uh, but they're there, and we've talked about this before, the, the whole idea for the Correct. mental health warrant, which I know everybody's got, oh, well, that violates their rights. Well, mm. civil commitment technically violates their rights, too, and right. we do that in mm. every state. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying is we need to have a mental health warrant where a detective is a detective, not a psychologist. Right. Uh, somebody files a complaint, hey, so-and-so saying this, he's going to har harm this group, or he's going to do this school on Facebook, blah, 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 blah. And the police officer goes, interviews, fills out his report, 
and takes that report to a judge and lets the judge look at it. And if the judge thinks it's serious enough, probably talking with the police officer also, ask the police officer to follow up with a, a warrant to actually look to see right. if that individual has the ways and means to follow through with something like that. Not that they're actually going to do it, right. but if they have the actual opportunity within their household. Right. And, and then that police officer then takes that data back to the judge. And if it looks like there is, the judge can then ask for not a commitment, just ask for them to be evaluated by a yeah. forensic psychologist who knows how to do risk assessment and take that information for the judge to then look at that civil commitment is that afterwards. The, do you know if there's a procedure right now in, in our school system throughout the country where the school itself will contact someone like you? If a Absolutely, red, there if is a not. Red, there is not. There is not. If there's no. a red flag. Yeah, there is, there is not. Because, first of all, they have their own school psychologist in there. I used to be one. Correct. But their job is... Well, he can go further, can he, himself? Well, but they don't necessarily have... I didn't have... When I was a school psychologist, I didn't have the training. Got I didn't it. know how to Got do it. the risk assessment. Now, there were kids at that time that I'm like, wow, this kid's going to... Well, as a school psychologist, could, wouldn't they say to you, why don't you call someone like you what you're doing now as a forensic psychologist? Well, okay. If, to help who, him. Who, who, to help him make the determination. Who's going to pay for it? That's the point. Okay. Very good. Who's going to pay for it? Who's going to sign off on the outside person doing the evaluation? Who's going to make the complaint? Who, right? It, who's going to make the accusation, though? Right? Exactly. And and mm. this here, you know, first of all, we leave it in, you know, who do we call when somebody makes a threat? The police. Okay. Yeah. And we leave it in that arena. We don't actually move for criminal charges on Correct. this person. So we're keeping their record clean that way. Hmm. And we're just moving forward with basically another form of that civil commitment. But we're not necessarily looking for commitment. We're looking for, hey, this is going on. Okay, let's get that family intervention. Let's right. get them and get them help. And uh, if they do that, then we can step away. Wow. Um, my guess, and uh, an hour has pretty much went by, Dr. <laughs> John Huber, clinical forensic psychologist. How can they reach you again? Let's let our audience know, Dr. John Huber. They need your services, your advice. Go check uh, out MainstreamMentalHealth.org. It's also .com, but we, we push the ORG. Uh, you can also find us at Mainstream Mental Health Radio, and we are on all the blog and, and podcast sites, whether it's uh, iTunes or Blog Talk. We also are on the Mental Health News Radio Network. Mm. And uh, follow us there. And, you know, keep your fingers crossed. We're working really hard trying to trying to get us into uh, some kind of national syndication. It's one of the reasons why I've been up here in New York this week. Oh, great. I wish you luck on that. But, you, you know, it, you know what I'm saying is that it sort of becomes a dirty word. Someone needs mental help, right? And how, Very we much. Got, we got to get we got to get past that. And that's that stigma. That's yes. a stigma, yeah. and it's cultural. It's within the military. If oh you, you you're depressed, you're broken, you're a threat to my troop. You know we gotta, mm. you know, and and that's not necessarily true. You know, you, your wife just tells you she wants to get a divorce, and you're right. over in Afghanistan. Oh. You know, that's unbelievable. Uh, yeah. Oh my God, we ran, out, we ran out of time with my great guest <laughs> uh, from Austin, Texas. Uh, pleasure to have you back and Streetwise. And this time, uh, sitting across from me, thank you, Dr. John Huber, clinical forensic psychologist. And you could find him online. Uh, again, appreciate that. You've been a great help. Thank I can you. tell that just by uh, I got a bunch of things on my uh, iPhone that we're trying to get through. Thank you, Dr. John Huber. This is Luke Tolano, and I'll catch you later. Thank you.
You've been listening to Streetwise on the station that serves your community, WGBB 